Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. And if you'll come this way, I'll show you the desk where Anna Wolf McKittrick wrote The Hulls of Gloucester. The whaling novel written entirely from the perspective of whales looking at the undersides of boats. That's one of my favorites. Yes. Well, you seem to know a lot more about Anna Wolf McKittrick than most visitors do. Do a lot of fans come here to see her house? Hardly any, unless you count the people asking directions to the Nicholas Sparks Flume of Love, which is located nearby. I know what people say about Anna Wolf McKittrick, that she's the worst novelist in the history of American literature. But her work speaks to me. When I read Hooves of Desire... That's the one about the Victorian woman who marries an antelope. But Ichabod is so much more than an antelope. Who wants to read Nicholas Sparks novels about a bunch of limp-wristed yuppies kissing in the rain? Give me a book like Anna Wolf McKittrick's The Rare Prunes of Montville, in which the aristocratic dreamboat Monty Marchmont yearns for Amanda, the peasant girl whose hands have been surgically grafted to a wheelbarrow. You'll have to excuse me. What is it? (laughs) Open the door a crack. Have they left yet? There's just one. She loves your books. She asked to see where you pooped. Get rid of her. Wait, how much did you charge her? Fifteen dollars. She didn't flinch. She drove six hours out of her way. Wow, fifteen? If she would just leave, we can go to Arby's and have money left over to go on that Nicholas Sparks ride. You haven't left the house since 2005. Oh, great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Throw that in my face and just finish the tour. So, is this fire poker the model for the one in the Avatar of Canterbury, in which Nell, the lactose intolerant seamstress, accidentally uses it to murder Howard, a harbor seal dressed in a tuxedo? Sure, maybe. I I guess. Look, we're going to have to cut this tour a little short. She's indisposed. Who's she? I meant me. I I sometimes refer to myself as... She. You meant Anna. She's alive. I knew it. I never believed that story about how she died when an eagle dropped a tortoise on her head. Whatever. Thanks for stopping by. Is it okay if I stand pressed up against the house so that some of her atoms come inside my body? Uh, knock yourself out. Bye bye That does it. Take down the sign. Even $15 isn't worth that. Today on the show, which famous writers have houses you can visit? And now he's still waiting in line at the Henry James theme park... Colin McEnroe. I just want to go on the Daisy Miller ride and the Golden Bowl tilt a whirl. Um, all right, so this is a this we're going to talk today about writers' houses, writers' museums, uh, the questions of you know which writers wind up being honored that way and which ones don't. Uh, this is a subject close to my heart. Let me just quickly tell you a story before we get going, which is that. Um, Back in 2007, I was getting these emails from this woman who kept writing to me about this. First of all, she was she wrote to me as if she were writing to somebody else, asking about a book by Colin McEnroe. And the book that she was describing was not a book that I'd ever written. But she wrote the emails as though she was writing to somebody else. And so I kind of took that cue and I wrote back to her and I explained that uh, that Colin McEnroe was dead and that I was Tanya Starr, the curator of the McEnroe Memorial, and that Colin McEnroe had been killed by monkeys on a safari in Africa. Uh, and uh, I said I didn't have too much information about this manuscript. And she wrote back 
I, I thought she was insufficiently, you know, touched by the story of my death by the monkeys. But she just wanted to know more about this book that she was pretty sure existed. And then as Tanya Starr, the outreach director for the McEnroe Memorial, I wrote back with more information, mainly about the hazards of traveling in monkey infested areas and the dangers of wearing earrings that look like fruit. Um, and we went back and forth for a while. And I got kind of attached to the idea of the McEnroe Memorial. And I thought, wouldn't it be great? <laughs> There's something kind of wonderful about that idea. I mean, the part where I'm dead isn't that wonderful. But, I mean, everything else about it seems, like, really great to have this sort of museum dedicated uh, to me and my meager literary output. So, anyway, this this idea, which Julia Fastell came up with, is very near and dear to my heart. So we're going to talk uh, as we go along here. You'll hear some specific plans for Maurice Sendak's uh, collection and memory and museum and for uh, something to do with Dr. Seuss. Uh, we, that entire section of the show will c- have one-syllable rhymes all the way through. Um, and we actually will talk about the rather paradoxical state of Wallace Stevens here in Hartford, a uh, monumental poet, no museum or house or anything like that. There's, You can walk outside our door and go through this 13 ways of looking at a blackbird thing that stretches. Well, never mind. We'll explain that to you when the time comes. But for for now, let's start with an overview. And to get our overview, we're going to talk to Alison Devers, the creator and author of Writer's Houses. Uh, she, she, this is an amazing website. I mean, it really is, if you like this kind of thing anyway, it's quite addictive. I've been spending a lot of time on it today, discovering all kinds of things uh, about writers' uh, houses and, and writers' uh, memorials and uh, who gets them and who doesn't and how much money gets spent in the on them and what kind of shape they're in and and stuff like that. So, um, Allison Devers, first of all, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Wonderful website. Thank you so much. So let's let's talk about writers' museums in the first place. Like, why even have a writers' museum? Why 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 would people want to go see you know Edith Wharton's house? We can get to the specifics of the mount itself, but why why would anybody want to go to that? Um. Well, Edith Wharton's house is a really particular case in the writer's house uh, genre. True. It, was a, it was a bad generic example. Uh, museum, I, yeah. because it's it's so large and, and, and grand that, of course, it draws a whole lot of interest from people outside of literary folk. So people might go see it just because it's a really big historic home, and that's a really cool thing to see. Um, but it's a very strange thing why people go to writer's houses. It's a curious adventure. Um, People really like to, people who love literature or love a book or have a really particular tie to an author are drawn to the place where they wrote that particular book or work. Um, Not everybody, but certainly that seems to drive a lot of the more popular writers' houses um, visitation. For instance, Jane Austen's house, Um, just, you know, tour buses. Tour buses to Shakespeare's house, tour buses to Jane Austen's house, tour buses to many of these houses, Ernest Hemingway's house in Key West. Um, There's a line out the door before opening every day during their season. Um, And people want to know, okay, where did this author write? Uh, There seems to be some idea that if you can stand in the vicinity of where that person wrote their work, that somehow you will be communing with them, or it will rub off on you, or you will have greater insight into how that person created um, created the the way that they, you know, created their master their masterpiece. Um, so um, there are other aspects to it. I think people are general history buffs, they're architecture buffs, and literary landmarks are a part of the general. Um, 
type of type of architectural history that exists for people to go and see and takes you know they, it's a certain angle on cultural history so it draws a draws sort of a broad background sometimes people go to writers houses and they've never read a, a word of the writer's work or they haven't read it since high school so it's an opportunity for them to be reminded of what they read before um, as we go along here, by the way, if anybody wants to chime in, either with um, stories of really terrific experiences you've have had visiting the houses of writers or ways in which you feel as though uh, our efforts to preserve some of our literary legacy in this way have been insufficient, uh, give us a call, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. If you're too shy to do that, you may tweet at us at WNPRCollin. That's at WNPRCollin. Uh, Greg Hill, the yo-yo ma of Twitter, is meaning our Twitter account right now. I should probably say, uh, use a more literary example. So uh, Greg Hill, the uh, the Dostoevsky uh, of Twitter, is meaning our Twitter account right now. So um, I think that was a great explanation, Alison Devers. And it, it's sort of paradoxical, right? Because, you know, compared to a lot of other people, writers really don't do very much. And I speak as a writer. I mean, in other words, you know, you go to Picasso's museum. First of all, you can look at some Picassos uh, and you might be able to look at uh, the studio where he worked and he is at least slapping some paint on canvases and stuff like that. Whereas writers pretty much sit there. Um, with, right. There are ex- there are exceptions like Twain, who, you know, had a pretty colorful existence. And I mean, obviously, we're very privileged to be sitting four or five blocks from his house. Um, and, and he had a very colorful, interesting existence and he collected a lot of stuff. And his house is just kind of cool to walk around but there's no real guarantee of that, right? Because writers, they, they, they kind of live outside their bodies a lot of the time. Right. Well, first of all, writers are notoriously antisocial. So perhaps some of the mystery or the intrigue is that we don't always know much about these writers or how they get to write these incredible works um, because we don't know who they are very, very much, you know. So they're, 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 they tend to be not interested in sharing a lot about their lives, with some exceptions. Um, like Mark Twain, who was a gregarious person. Um, and uh, I think that's a part of it, is that right, people who aren't writers are, are so interested in how, you know, it's, it's a mystery how a person creates. So that there's a puzzle to be unraveled, and it's not unravelable, but you can take part in the person, you know, depending on the type of writer's house, you can have quite an experience seeing seeing that person's life a little bit, um, or you can imprint your own memory of reading a book into the house or attempt to sort of combine your reading experience of a, a, of a work with your visit to the house and come away with something totally new or a totally new take on what you, what you love about that writer or that, that, um, that novel or that poem. So uh, we do want to explore kind of the capriciousness or the near arbitrariness with which some writers are commemorated and which some writers are not. Um, and, and it's all over the map, right? I mean, it's, um, it's totally all over the map. And, and it doesn't seem to have too much to do with how estimable the writer is. Sometimes it has right. something to do with what neighborhood the writer's house was in in the first place. Right? I mean, I, right. my sense is that like Poe's house is in a place in a like not a very cool part of Baltimore. It isn't, and it, it's actually a very interesting story. The the Poe House in Baltimore was uh, always in a poor place in Baltimore. Edgar Allan Poe was destitute as a writer for his whole life, and every time he moved, he'd have to go to some new place that was destitute. Um, so he, um, his, the neighborhoods that he lived in haven't changed that much. Uh, they, they've remained poor, so it's actually a really interesting example of, like, uh, if you were, you know, to look at, 
the, the, if you wanted to look at gentrification and the, the, the waves of change and poverty in America, if you look at just where Edgar Allan Poe lived, it's actually quite concerning that these places that were poor when he lived there have remained quite poor, you know, to this day. And it says something. It says that maybe these things that we think change don't actually change that much. Um, so his house is very small in Baltimore. Uh, and it, he lived in it with his aunt and at his time his cousin, who later became his wife, um, controversially, because she married her when she was quite young. And uh, it's really barely, <laughs> it's barely a house. It's it's a couple of rooms stacked on top of each other on a corner. And they almost tore it down, and then someone realized they were putting it in projects uh, in the 40s, I think. And they almost tore it down, and then some people realized that they were about to tear down Edgar Allan Poe's Baltimore home. And there was an outcry, and the house was saved. And what's happened is the projects have been built around it, and they are actually called the Poe House, the Poe Homes. So the people who live around the Poe House or live in the Poe Homes. And, you know... This is all really, you know, sort of culturally significant right now because what's going on in that neighborhood is people are wondering, is the house okay? Is it being destroyed? And I actually just read that the house is being well taken care of by the neighbors who are very peaceful and respectful of the house. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of suspicion that the people are going to destroy something of cultural significance because they're angry, when in fact they have always been very respectful of the fact that they live near a culturally significant place. So... Um, it's it's really very interesting. Um, that house is also controversial because it was closed a, about a year and a half ago um, by the government, who decided to to take it out of running. The city decided to stop running it, and they've given it to a nonprofit arm of the city. And there's a lot of controversy around this because the person who led the house for 30 years lost his job. And there was this plan for a while that police escorts were going to take tourists in and out of the neighborhood. And so, of course, this was very controversial and also really offensive to many people. So I think that part of the plan got scrapped. But essentially everything around that Baltimore house is sort of under a lot of intense uh, scrutiny uh, because of this change in the way they manage the house. It's open for less hours, the way they take into taken people to the neighborhood, and when, when no one has ever gotten hurt visiting the Poe House, although it is in a very um, poor neighborhood, and yes, crime happens in that neighborhood. And The Wire, famously, the, the, the television show, the first death on The Wire um, happens in the Poe Home Projects, so... Hmm. Um, I just I just rewatched that first one. I, I mean, I somehow I didn't catch that. Well, that's a kind yeah. of that's a good segue into the fact that uh, if we we're to make a list of significant American authors whose houses aren't preserved and who don't have museums, um, pretty much most most of the really significant African American writers of the twentieth century would be on that list, right? They would. It's really disturbing to me. Um, it's it's the thing I'd like to see change the most about preservation of writers' houses. It just seems like we've preserved. We've mostly preserved um, uh, one type of writer's, uh, writer's house in America. There are only a couple. Alex Haley's, who wrote Roots, you can visit his house, and it has a museum interpretive center. It's in Tennessee. Um, there has been talk off and on about preserving different places. There was some, uh, I think Langston Holmes' birthplace was demolished, but they've tried to, despite that, make it a landmark where the blueprint of the house was. Um, uh, and uh, Langston Hughes' houses went up for sale in New York City, and there was a little bit of talk about trying to preserve it. Um, 
But essentially, you can't go see a house by an African-American writer besides the Alex Haley house. Um, and, and um, you know, I personally drove, because he's one of my favorite writers, drove to Richard Wright's house in Natchez, Mississippi, on a big Southern writers tour to see what it was like. And it, it's very interesting. It's a, it's a very small house, um, very close to the, the river. And uh, it's in a very poor neighborhood full of shotgun shacks. And it is the most well-cared-for house on the block. So the person who privately owns that house is very, very proud of that house and is taking incredible care of it. But it's not open for tours. Um, so that's something I would really like to see change. I would really like to see um, African-American landmarks take as much, pre- you know, as much place in our story of literary history as other landmarks. I mean, I would like a diverse swath of writers to be, to be remembered in these houses. Is is are, do you feel prepared to make a categoriz- or a characterization overall about how the U.S. does as opposed to other cultures? I mean, I, reading your terrific blog, I'm aware that uh, one of Oscar Wilde's flats—I don't know how many flats he had—is on the, was on the market for 1.8 million. On the other, <laughs> so I mean, apparently you can sell Oscar Wilde's flat. On the other hand, uh, Mo Yan, who won the Nobel Prize, uh, China, uh, his hometown in China, uh, quickly released a 110 million. Million-dollar plan for a Mo Yan theme yeah. park, which is the kind of thing we don't really do here. How does the right. U.S. do? Are we are are we any good at this at all? Not, we're not great at it. Part of it is that we don't have. You know, who's great at it is is you know England is really good at it because they have a national historic trust. So like houses come into the trust are required by the trust, and they have a huge amount of support for the trust. We do have different trusts around the country for different cities. New York City has a trust, and the Edgar Allan Poe house runs in part out of that, the Bronx house that he has here. But um, there's no, like, national body uh, to fund different types of literary landmarks. And the, the, the historic trust in Britain is actually much bigger than that. It, you know, it covers all sorts of houses, not just literary houses. Um, so I think I think what happens is the writers' houses that you visit end up being in a broad range of um, sort of you, you, it's like a mixed bag. What you get, some of them are very well cared for because the neighborhood and community surrounding the houses um, are super supportive of their endeavors to be a living history museum or or some kind of museum for for or or provides a lot of tourism and money to the neighborhood. But sometimes there's absolutely no support and the house is just getting by on a few volunteer docents, and and you can see that it's just very thin what they're able to offer to people. Um, I also do think that it has something to do with, you know, the legacy of the writer. So some writers' legacies dim over time and become less um, bright. Uh, uh, an, an example is uh, uh, Bryant, William, I'm going to get his name wrong William, now that William I've thought Jennings of it. Bryant? But William Cullen, oh, Cullen William, William Cullen Bryant, okay, yeah. Right. So his house, they're trying to save it right now in Long Island. Um, he was so famous. But he's not that famous anymore, and the American public isn't going to know his name right off the bat or what he wrote. But, you know, every year they have four or five fundraisers to try to get enough money to do repairs to the house to keep it, to keep it maintained until they can reopen it as a, a place for people to visit. So, you know, there are arguments about whether you should keep open museums to writers people don't, don't necessarily have on their radar anymore. And I think what happens is... Writers' houses are a really good example of how we value who we value at the current time in writing. 
you know. So certain writers' houses, you can tell that the author has just got a really, really strong afterlife. Edgar Allan Poe, Emily Dickinson, Jane Austen, you know, they all just are still captive, capture, capturing our imaginations as writers. Um, there are many writers who still capture our imaginations who, who didn't have the, the, the luck of having a writer's house saved. So I know that if they did have a writer's house, people would flock to it. I think, you know, if there was a uh, Henry James house in New York City, we, people could go visit. I think people would go for sure. Um, but there's not because New York City doesn't doesn't have they don't have a really good handle on being able to save real estate because it's so expensive here. <laughs> well, I have one thing I have to say is that every time Wally Lamb visits our studios, which he does frequently, I steal one of his possessions because I feel <laughs> as though you know if I get enough of them, uh, you know, I can get something started. So uh, I just want to share a few tweets here, and then I really do want to ask you, uh, Allison, about the uh, project in, in Chicago. Uh, but before we get to that, and Maria's tweeting Eugene O'Neill. Although the Cottage of Monte Cristo is one thing, the pub he wrote in is better: the Dutch Tavern in New London, uh, causing oh, very cool. uh, causing today's producer Julia Pastel to say maybe where the writers drink is more important than yeah uh, i just i actually just wrote about this for men's journal um i wrote an article about literary bars and what's interesting about literary bars is they really try to try to um celebrate the legacy of the writers and literary bars who attach themselves to a writer they really do a big job of it they put pictures up on the wall of the writer and sometimes pages and covers of their books but but often often the story is very sad often that writer had a horrible drinking problem and some you know many writers died of their drinking problems and the the stories that come out of the bars that they frequented are kind of tragic so I like to I like to say that the the bars need the writers more than the writers need the bars. <laughs> we, oh, we also have a tweet: uh, an elder from Hauchiki, elderly friends, or maybe that's just how Julia characterizes this tweet. tweet. How, elderly friends, great grandmother cleaned Twain's house, and word was he had very bad aim. If you know what I mean, his pen was <laughs> actually, mightier than his I sword. I have a personal story too. My um my uncle. Uh, my uncle rewired the Twain house when he was a young man with his, with uh, my my uncle by marriage. So my my husband's uncle rewired the electricity in the train house in like the sixties, I think, with his father, who was an electrician. So. Um. <laughs> Well, we also, uh, we, uh, you know, swab the bathroom after Wally Lamb uses it, too. So um, we have, we've collected all that as well. And then quickly, Amy in New Haven wrote uh, an email that it says, uh, among the many reasons to celebrate these places is that they allow us access into the private lives of not just these individual people, but the time, place, and society in which they lived. Importantly, this access to private lives is often related to access to women's lives, preserving the quiet, everyday work of homemaking that is so critical in our society. In, in short, it's about the writer, but much, much more. It was Absolutely. well said. And actually, there's a, quite a number of, of female writers' houses in the country, and that's actually a relief to me, considering there's like a discrepancy in terms of the literary legacy of men to women writers, just based on history, typical history of the way things have, have gone, gone it, in society. For, but it, for it, does women, also so. feel, it does also feel that these, these things are, can be precari- precarious at times. In fact, you don't have to have, go back very far to where the Twain House was getting a lot of coverage in the New York Times about the right. fact that you know, it might not be able to continue, right. uh, maybe some bad decisions by prior management. But th- you're right. dependent on management. And the same thing, I mean, we started this conversation, Allison, talking about the Mount, uh, the, the home of Edith Wharton in 2008. Right. That was facing foreclosure. I, I think they got through that, right? They got through that, and my understanding was that was because they acquired a very expensive library uh, that was originally in the house of Edith Wharton's books. And 
But I would say is that's a real opportunity for a writer's, writer's house that they can get the support because what that allows, if they get the library um, back, you know, it allows the house to have a different aspect or angle or dimension to itself. So, you know, now maybe scholars can come and be in the original house and looking at her books and putting them in a different context for their biographies. So I, I really appreciate that they tried to do that. But I think, you know, writers' houses are often stretched so thin that it, it becomes very difficult for them to acquire these things and, and, and still stay healthy financially. And in our country, I think it's a little bit different. And I always, are, because I have all these status updates about different writers' houses, for instance, the Bronte Museum is always, always acquiring new things back into the fold for the house to put on display. And I think it's because they, they, have, a, they have a massive tourist industry surrounding the Bronte Parsonage, and um, they have funding from the government. And, you know, they're, they're just, it's just a much... It's a it's a much healthier um, endeavor for them than most of our writers' houses. So. Uh, all right, so uh, we're going to grab a, a, a break here. We're talking to Allison Devers. Uh, she runs a wonderful website, which I really encourage you, if you have any interest anyway in this topic, to visit. It's called Writers' Houses. Uh, it really is. It gives you up-to-the-date, up-to-the-minute updates about all kinds of things happening with all kinds of writers' houses. When we come back, we'll be talking about ways to commemorate Dr. Seuss and Maurice Sendak. All right, we're back. One thing we didn't get a chance to talk about with Alice Endeavors is this um, plan. I think it's supposed to open in 2016 uh, in Chicago. There's going to be just a, um, a museum dedicated to writers, to a writer's museum dedicated to American writers. and There'll be kind of a, a hall of fame and all kinds of other stuff. It looks like a very cool concept. I do want to say on the enormous scrap heap that uh, is or are the ideas of Colin McEnroe was this idea before we settled on the Science Center for the Adrian's Landing Project. Uh, I publicly suggested on numerous occasions that many cities have science museums, but we actually could have a museum that was dedicated to the history of the printed word. You know, we've got the dictionary here with Noah Webster. We've got Twain. We've got Harriet Beecher Stowe. We've got Wallace Stevens. We've got, I mean, I had this whole list of, of things. and We could just do this museum that was sort of about writers and sort, sort of about publishing and printing, and nobody listened to me. Um, but you just listened to me, so that, that fixes everything. All right, we're going to get real specific here uh, because, in fact, there's two writers uh, whose, whose roots are very nearby where I am right now uh, who are in the process of having their legacies preserved. And so we're going to talk to, uh, to Jennifer Matthey. Uh, Jennifer Matthey is a member of a three-person Maurice Sendak Museum exploration team in the very early stages of figuring out exactly how this is going to work, if it's going to work. Uh, Kay Simpson is also joining us. She is the vice president of Springfield Museums. She's going to talk about the plans for Dr. Seuss. But uh, Jennifer, so let's talk, uh, let's start with you. And so the Sendak story uh, is a story to a certain degree, of Ridgefield, Connecticut. And it kind of looks as though, if anything's going to happen, it's going to happen in Ridgefield, right? I think so. You know, Ridgefield, Connecticut, uh, apart from being Maurice Sendak's home for four years, is a part of his narrative. And if you want to understand an artist, we think you have to take a look at what he's drawn to. Um, we're a town that's rich in history and in the arts. And I think Maurice was the same way. He loved it here. So why wouldn't it be here? 
And it seems as though the plan, I mean, you know, one thing that we didn't really have time to get into with Allison all that much is, you know, there's a number of different ways you can go with something like this. You can, if there's a house, if there's a house that's rich and redolent with the mystique of the writer, then you you make it about that house uh, if it's at all possible to preserve that house in that way. And the other way you can do it is with an interpretive museum uh, as close to that house as you can get. That that seems to be more the way you're headed, right? There's a property in, in Ridgefield that they're looking at. Exactly, exactly. Um, we're, we're operating under the assumptions that this museum will promote illustration as an art form, as well as Maurice's life and legacy. Now, for Maurice, that includes a life and legacy that took inspiration from a number of other artists, like Homer and Blake and even Mozart, as well as one that influenced uh, new illustrators like uh, uh, Brian Selznick and, and Harry Bliss and artists like that. So anything that uh, any narrative about Maurice Sendak will not only include his work and his life and his legacy, but a look to his to the past, to the people who influenced him and the people he has influenced. There was quite a bit of uh, coverage in the New York Times a while back, I think it was in maybe around 2014, about the uh, Sendak estate and kind of who owned what and who was going to control this process. Did that all get resolved? Is there, is there sort of a general agreement about how to handle the Maury Sendak collection? You know what? This exploration team, the one I'm on, is an independent entity. We approached them with the idea for a public museum, and while we're wholeheartedly endorsed by both the foundation and the town of Ridgefield, we're a separate group. So um, I have no dealings or, frankly, (laughs) any knowledge of the foundation's ongoing litigation. It's just, you know, what I've personally read in the press, just like you have. But the notion, anyway, would be to exhibit as much as possible of, I mean, the great thing about Sendak and about Seuss, whom we're about to add to this conversation, is they're profoundly visual. If you go, if we did have a Wallace Stevens Museum, well, you know, there's just poems, basically. I mean, there's the, the thing about these men is that they have a tremendous amount of visual stuff that you can exhibit. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I started this process myself with the understanding that Maurice Sendak was a great American illustrator, but, and that his work resonated with people beyond his chameleon-like skills and an illustrator for a hundred, a hundred books, like um, for writers like Hans Christian Andersen and Leo Tolstoy and Melville and William Blake, he he wrote and illustrated and is considered one of the greatest um, illustrators of the the 20th century. So yeah, his his work is beautiful and vivid and exciting to look at. You know, back in the early 1980s, um, I, he and I uh, corresponded back when people wrote, wrote letters a little bit, and we did speak on the phone once or twice. But I got the feeling he was a pretty private guy, you know, that he wasn't really somebody who, uh, you know, I mean, obviously it doesn't really matter now, but, but it, it, he wasn't an exhibitionistic kind of person. Is that your sense as well? You know what? I, 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 he was a private guy, and, and the people who knew him, oh, loved that man. And I, I think I've been thinking a lot about this subject and, and this, this comment that he's a private man. Absolutely. In this day and age, it's hard to sort of, in the world of Facebook and, and instant sharing of what I had for dinner and <laughs> what I'm doing tomorrow and the next day, it, it's kind of, you, you don't get it. But I, I understand his, his need for privacy. And that's part of why he loved Ridgefield. We, he had a lot of land here. He loved it. It was beautiful. He could sit down and he could work, which is what he did. 
Well, uh, theoretically, if uh, we uh, got the the Ridgefield Museum up and running and and this uh, tribute to illustration, to Sendak, to the art of illustration in books, generally speaking, and and, uh, to uh, children's books uh, in particular, uh, there might be some kind of uh, writer and artist trail uh, that would pass through Ridgefield and then go uh, head on towards Springfield, Massachusetts. So joining us now is Kay Simpson. Uh, Springfield is the hometown of Dr. Seuss, uh, better known. Well, no, he actually, he's better known as Dr. Seuss, his real my name is Theodora Geisel. Um, so, um, Kay Simpson, I know there's there's already a sculpture garden, right? But na- now there's going to be more? Exactly. Um, we opened the Dr. Seuss National Memorial Sculpture Garden in the summer of 2002. And the sculptures represent some of the beloved characters from Dr. Seuss books. They were created by Lark Ray Diamond Cates, who's an artist and is also the stepdaughter of Ted Geisel. Um, So there is a family connection. And when we opened the Sculpture Garden in 2002, uh, we just um, were inundated with visitors um, from around the country and literally from around the world because Dr. Seuss is so popular and his popularity just keeps growing. So, Uh, so, So tell us what you've got planned now. Yeah, so once visitors came onto the quadrangle, of course, the first thing they were looking for was a Dr. Seuss museum. They really wanted an exhibition experience in one of our buildings. So what we have planned now is we want to transform one of our museum buildings into a place that really honors Ted Geisel and his legacy in Springfield. The first floor is going to be uh, dedicated to an interactive experience um, that's really designed for children and families that we're calling the amazing world of Dr. Seuss. So the major theme of the exhibit is Ted grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, and um, while he was a boy, he saw things and encountered people that later surfaced in his books. So we really trace some of those connections. And, and really, that will create a sense of place, I think, for a lot of people in our community. And, and I think it will also be very appealing to other visitors. You know, I'm going to ask you both about this. I'm going to go back to Jennifer for just a second. I want to hear from both of you about this, though. Um, the other question would be, I mean, so in each case, we're talking about a museum, something that's kind of interpretive, something that's, in the case of Seuss, uh, pretty interactive. Um, but there's sort of that other question, right, about things that would be in the writer's house if you were in the writer's house, but you're not. But, I mean, I would assume that you may and probably will have access to I don't know, inkwells and coffee mugs and things that this person actually touched. So, Jennifer, I'll start with you. Is that something you're interested in having in Ridgefield in a Sendak Museum? Is like some sense of maybe a recreation of his living or workspace or just stuff that he owned that, that people can— At yeah. this point, we are in the early stages of this, but I can tell you um, off the top of my head, yes. I think that Maurice Sendak, for example, was— um, an amazing and astute art collector, and a fan of early 1930s Mickey Mouse toys. And so he has a collection within his house of these amazing, beautiful Mickey Mouse figurines and and mechanical toys that are just astounding to look at. So yeah, his collection was a part of his life. So why wouldn't we include something like that? And, and, and what about you, Kay? Um, how does that work on the Dr. Seuss end of things? 
Well, as I said, we want to have the interactive experience on the first floor, but we do have a relationship with the family. And so I did mention um, that Lark Ray Diamond Cates, um, one of his stepdaughters, actually created the sculpture garden. Um, his other stepdaughter, Lee Gray Diamond, um, has a fairly significant collection of Dr. Seuss memorabilia, as well as um, some of his furniture and other belongings. And that includes things like the ceramic jars that he had in his studio that contained all of his um, paintbrushes and other tools of the trade, um, and, and just the things that he collected, because uh, he traveled extensively. Ted Geisel traveled extensively, and he just picked up things wherever he went, um, things that he found interesting, little figurines, um, things that just caught his eye. And he had these things in his studio. And so what Lee Gray and Lark would like us to do is actually recreate his studio and sitting room in the museum. Um, we're planning to do that on the second floor of the museum building. And their feeling is that this should be set up as a space where when visitors see it, they have the feeling that Ted just stepped out of the room. And, and I think that is important. This was um, a very creative space for Ted. It's the place where he actually created all these wonderful books that everyone you know, has grown up with and, and are still um, so, so important to people today. Um, and I'm also wondering, I'm going to ask both of you about this, but Kay, I'll stay with you for just a second. You know, each of these men are work, worked for children. They, they, they wrote for children. But they were also adult men. They had adult lives. Uh, Dr. Seuss, uh, Theodore Geisel um, had pretty strong political views, uh, pretty strong liberal Democrat, even uh, created for other people's amusement, uh, a kind of repurposing of one of his books telling Richard Nixon to go away. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's sort of a lot of stuff like that that might be, first of all, not all that aimed at kid, uh, kids and also maybe a little bit more controversial. Is that something you, that you'll tackle somewhere in the museum or just let that part of it slip away? Oh, no, absolutely. I, I think, um, and that's, uh, the stepdaughters feel very strongly about that. They really want this uh, to be a museum that tells the story of Ted and, and not just his children's books, but the fact that he was a very sophisticated um, man and someone who had strong opinions. So in, in other areas of the museum, um, we do want to have uh, changing exhibits, so we might show his political cartoons or showcase other aspects of his work. And um, I'm wondering the same thing, uh, Jennifer, about you, you on, on, or at least about Sendak. So with Sendak, probably the, the, the version of that with, with Sendak would be more in the level of his personal life. He was gay. He was not terribly out uh, for the most part. Is, how do you plan to deal with, with that part of Sendak's story? You know what? I am not an exhibit designer. I'm a, I'm a member of this exploratory team. I can tell you that um, Maurice Sendak, while this museum will absolutely be for children and will not exclusively be for children, his work and his subject matter and his themes, his 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 sort of constant theme of, of embracing the intelligence and an emotional awareness of children really means something to people. And so we... We are challenged with the fact that this museum will be for both children and adults, and how do we keep them both parties engaged? Um, you don't have to come with a child, uh, and you might come because you read it, this book or one of his books 40, 50 years ago, and, and it resonated with you, and you want to walk in and just learn more about the man. 
Well, I can see just a wonderful uh, little sort of J-shaped tour from Ridgefield coming through Hartford. You can get Tween and Stowe and all that kind of stuff and then head on up to Springfield uh, to uh, to see Dr. Seuss. It, it sounds like a great project or a great series of projects. So, Jennifer uh, and Kay, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to take a very short break here. We're, we're going to come back. Uh, this is kind of a little, you know, I don't know, it's a sore subject in Hartford. Uh, what 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 can be done for Wallace Stevens? What has been done, and what can be done? So long, Doctor Seuss. We know important things were always said. Though Tinsel Town would take them, now you're dead. They always disappoint, Doctor Seuss. I go to Maine all the time, and I've never seen signs for Jessica Fletcher's house. What do you mean she's not real? Today's show was produced by Julia Pistel and me, Kion Wolf. Our other intern is Kelsey Bissell. Greg Hill and Julia appeared in the intro, and Greg tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Edith Wharton. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff using the Ouija board at the James Merrill House, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose dips back into the Charlie Hebdo controversy. And now, back to Colin. Yes, actually, we, we, can, we can follow this up. We have a pretty writerly panel tomorrow for the nose. Rand Cooper will be joining us. Kate Russian, the poet, will be making her debut here on the nose, and Irene Papoulos. And we're going to be talking a lot about writers. We'll be talking about the fact that uh, at this prestigious pen gala that's coming up, uh, a whole bunch of writers uh, announced that they didn't want to be at it uh, as honorees with Charlie Hebdo, that they, they are not comfortable with that style of, uh, of satire. We're also going to be talking about uh, Letterman as a lion in winter and about Frank Rich's article about uh, the end of the era of anchormen. So um, all of that coming up tomorrow on the show on the nose. Uh, our third segment here, we of course we've got to talk about Wallace Stevens. So here in Hartford, uh, it's so easy uh, to visit the Mark Twain house. It's so easy to visit uh, the Harriet Beecher Stowe house. Then you get to Wallace Stevens, who certainly you know ranks right up there among our literary celebrities, or he could anyway. Uh, and we don't have quite so much, but we do have this very interesting walk that you can take. It's you walk right out the door uh, of the uh, radio building that I'm in right now, and you can kind of get started. So. Uh, we are now uh, going to talk a little bit about that with Christine Palm and Jim Finnegan, current and uh, past and current president of the Friends and Enemies of Wallace Stevens. Welcome to our studios. Hi, Colin. Hi, Colin. So, um, Christine, first of all, um, every once in a while, in fact, quite recently, the actual house of Wallace Stevens uh, in the West End goes up for sale and gets bought. But I guess there's never any real possibility of like buying it and keeping it as the Wallace Stevens house. We tried as creatively and collaboratively as we could. Um, I, I think Jim should talk about that. All right. Yeah, it had been in the hands of the Episcopal Diocese for many years. And when it came on the market, there was a, you know kind of a, a furor to try to develop a plan to take it on. Um, it uh, was about a half-million-dollar price tag, so it wasn't uh, an inconsiderable amount of money. And um, we approached the Hartford and some local universities and colleges about maybe taking it on as a writer's residence, in the case of the Hartford as a corporate residence, just trying to get it off the market and, and preserve it was the main uh, thing. But then it kind of morphed into a plan through a woman in Maine who had an intention of trying to turn it into a museum, which was really not the initial inclination of the Friends and Enemies. 
But anyway, what, what I think did happen was it just got bought by somebody, right? It did. It got by, bought by uh, two doctors that work with uh, John Hopkins Medical Center, I believe. So, and the house we should say is um, off Terry Road. It's, on, it's actually a Westerly Terrace, right? Yeah, West, yeah. 118. 118. Yeah. Um, well, I don't see the address. Now people are going to go look at these poor doctors. We'll have no privacy whatsoever. <laughs> They're actually fans of Wallace Stevens. Yeah. They love the legacy. So. Well, that's good. That's good. So the one thing that we do know, of course, is that Wallace Stevens worked at the Hartford, and that uh, every day uh, he walked to work, he walked home from work, uh, and that theoretically he was turning these poems, these ideas for poems, these words over in his head, quietly mumbling to himself, like me, uh, as he walked uh, walked this route. So one thing that you have done, Christine, is preserve the route. Anyway, you can explain for people who've, who don't know about this uh, what's been done out there. Yes, thanks. Uh, the Wallace Stevens Walk is a self-guided walking tour that stretches from his home to the Hartford, or from the Hartford to his home, depending. And each of the 13 granite stones has a stanza of one of his most famous and accessible poems, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. And it was a project 10 years in the making anyway. Um, it originated with my predecessor, the first uh, director of the, of the foundation, um, Dan Schneidt, who came to Hartford from New York and said, where is Wallace Stevens, which a lot of people have asked. The great thing about this walk is that we deliberately, after much agonizing as a board, decided not to have plaques, not to have photos, uh, not to identify the words at all, let them completely speak for themselves. And it was a little bit of a radical decision, which I think has been turned out to have been a wise one. We have seen kids writing it down, sitting, classical magnet kids, um, sitting on top of it like Rodin's Thinker, writing down what it says, going home, Googling it. We know Jim heard from a woman whose mother was ill at St. Francis Hospital and after many visits going by, pulled the car over, wrote down stanza, stanza six, went home and looked it up and was extremely moved and comforted. Um, we've had people from all over the world come and take this walk. So it's sort of, a, Jim, kind of literary stations of the cross. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's it's – a uh, poem at large in the landscape is the way I like to think of it. And people can just kind of stumble upon it, as Christine said, and then, you know, take those words back with them. And in, in this world of Google, a lot easier to determine where they came from. But I think the element of surprise, the element of just being out there in the landscape, make it, make it an interesting and interactive type of memorial. Um, if you had to explain, Jim, to somebody why why Wallace Stevens uh, – I mean he's he's a household name kind of, but I mean there's a lot of people who really don't know who Wallace Stevens is. Matthew just tweeted to us, Wallace Stevens was a master of modernism. He deserves more love from his home city. If you were going to try to explain who Wallace Stevens is and why rather than any other poet, he might deserve this kind of commemoration, what would you say? Well, I, th- I think he – uh, is seen in probably the, as the t- one of the top five or ten poets from the 20th century. And his reputation has continued to grow over the years among, uh, particularly in the academic and the writerly community. Poets talk about him. Some of those poems are, will be immortal, I think, for another thousand years, if we can look ahead that far. But um, he, he just also makes an interesting um, Paradox, having that life in the insurance world and then this imaginative life, which I think is a kind of attractive to a lot of people who have you know jobs that maybe they're not as uh, vested in spiritually but have this other passion. And Stevens sort of embodies that. Christine, why is it called the friends and enemies of Wallace Stevens? <laughs> well, the Friends and Enemies of Modern Music was was an organization at the Wazirth Athenaeum, and he was very much steeped in that era of cultural uh, engagement. Um, it's a little bit 
of a nod to the fact that Stevens was terribly crotchety. I think Hemingway described him as pleasant like cholera. Mm -hmm. And he was notoriously private. He called himself the hermit of poetry. So a lot of people found him very distancing. Um, We have a, a good friend, Ed Diamante, who is a professor emeritus from the Hart School of Music, and he once tried to give Stevens a ride. And Stevens said to him, well... Yes, I'll take the ride if you promise not to speak. <laughs> he was a he was a crotch a crotchety guy. The third reason is I think um, our predecessor just did a brilliant marketing uh, tact. Honestly, everybody has the friends of someone, but the friends and enemies makes people stand up and notice. Uh, my theory is that we, since we can't have the house, we need to do more sort of tableau vivant kinds of things or, re- or reenactments. Uh, we could do a yearly reenactment of the Hemingway-Stevens fight. They had a fist fight, right? Great idea. That's um, true. <laughs> so get a couple of, you know, get Will, Will Wilkins can be Wallace Stevens, and I don't know who's <laughs> going to be Hemingway. But uh, maybe Jim, maybe it'll be you. Uh, and the other thing that I thought, I've always wanted to do this, to do a, some kind of reenactment me, with maybe – maybe kind of in concert form, but not entirely, of Four Saints in Three Acts. You know, the Virgil Thompson, Gertrude Stein opera that debuted in Hartford. The young John Hausman was the director. Um, You know, like everybody showed up. Everybody came from Buckminster Fuller, pulled up in his teardrop-shaped car, and Dorothy Hale got out. I mean, we could just do a great evening like that. And famously... Wallace Stevens beholding all of these New York luminaries, these great New York glittering bold-faced names and celebrities uh, at, the, uh, at the opening reception, referred to them, I think, as asses of the first water, uh, <laughs> and turned on his heel and left and would take no part in. So, so could, what you're yeah. basically saying is it's his own damn fault that he doesn't have a museum. Well, I, I think I'm just, <laughs> I'm just joining in with you. I mean, he may be, maybe it, the best tribute to Wallace Stevens is to not give him a museum, but uh, keep him alive some other way. Thank you so much for coming in here. We are out of time. I have to profusely thank Julia Pistel. This was the whole thing was her idea. She pulled it together. She got fabulous guests. And just a great topic anyway. We'll be back tomorrow with a nose. We'll try to keep all this excellence going. McKittrick, I knew you were still alive and eating cheesy poofs, watching Maury Povich. I have to admit, I'm feeling a little disillusioned about you and your career. Exit through the gift shop. You are not surprised.